0: Hello, and welcome to Wedge Issues, a politics podcast from the Cap Times. I'm Jesse Opoyan, our capital bureau chief.
1: And I'm Jack Kelly, a politics reporter with the Cap Times. In less than a month, Wisconsinites will elect the next justice of the Wisconsin Supreme Court. The race pits Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protosiewicz against former state Supreme Court Justice Daniel Kelly.
0: The race, which has seen record-setting spending and is becoming more contentious every day, will determine whether conservatives or liberals have a majority on the court. We sat down with former Justice Daniel Kelly, the race's conservative candidate, this week to discuss the race, what's at stake, and his judicial philosophy. Here's our conversation with Daniel Kelly.
1: Justice Daniel Kelly, thank you very much for joining Wesh Issues. How are you?
2: I am well. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate this. Yeah, we are. We're looking forward to our
1: conversation. So to start, we're just under a month out from election day now. In your mind, what are the stakes of this race?
2: I think the stakes uh, are these. Will we continue to have the rule of law or will we instead have the rule of Janet? The way I see it, there's enough room on the Supreme Court for the Constitution or for my opponent, but not both. So uh, my concern is this, our Constitution has had a 175 year run so far. And the question before us is whether we're going to continue to have the Constitution there to protect our most cherished liberties or not. My opponent has made it abundantly clear that her plan, if she's elected, is to put herself above the law. She's even gone so far as to say she would place her thumb on the scales of justice to ensure that cases are resolved according to her personal values. Well, uh, near as I can tell, putting your thumb on the scales is the oldest picture of dishonesty that we have available to us in our culture. And that's her promise to the people of Wisconsin, that that's what she would do. So the people of Wisconsin are on notice. Uh, she's telling them, that she will prefer her personal values over their law, over their Constitution. And so, as we approach April 4th, that's what we've got to figure out. Do we want to continue to have the rule of law in our Constitution, or are we going to walk away from it?
0: How do you define your judicial philosophy?
2: So, I call myself a constitutional conservative. Probably better to say just a constitutionalist. You know, there's been this movement in the phraseology over time, and uh, one of the reasons I prefer constitutionalist is because some people confuse conservatism as being about politics. But a constitutional conservative is exactly about not politics. So it's the conserving of the Constitution, right? And so what that looks like is, uh, you know, I understand that all the authority that I exercised on the Supreme Court was on loan to me from the people of Wisconsin. And they didn't just say, here's a bunch of power, use it however you wish, right? They didn't say that. They said, we've got one job for you. Please pay attention, do it well, but it's just one thing. Use the existing law to decide the cases that come before the court and nothing else. And they tell us, we're not interested in what you think about the law, whether it's good or fair or wise or effective. We've got an entirely different branch of government with whom to have that conversation. We call it a legislature. So you do your job, you resolve legal questions, and you let the legislature resolve political questions. So constitutional conservatism is about honoring that divided authority that the people of Wisconsin have set up. So when I decide cases, when I analyze them, all I'm doing is looking at, at what the law requires of us, not consulting my personal values or my personal politics.
0: How has your life experience prepared you to serve on the state Supreme Court?
2: Yeah, so I fell in love with the law back in seventh grade. Uh, there are some who would say that that would make me a law nerd, and I will not dispute that. But I think that was largely because my parents instilled in me a deep sense of justice. Uh, and even in the seventh grade, I understood that justice comes from following the law and making sure that there is a standard that we can all know what it is in advance uh, so that we can make decisions that conform to the law. And that's what I mean when we talk about the rule of law, knowing what the requirements are in advance. And I think that's one of the reasons why my opponent's uh, approach is so disastrous. Um, Because if you're going to uh, decide cases according to your personal values, then we can't know in advance what the law requires of us. We have to wait until we are in front of a court and we get to the Supreme Court, and then if Janet's there, then she'll tell us what was required of us years ago when we made our decision. So that's why that approach is so disastrous. So it was really a love of the law that led me to law school and then uh, my practice for uh, 20 some odd years before I was appointed to the Supreme Court. And uh, so I think that's the the, the biggest thing that influences uh, the way I look at the law.
1: The race has already broken the record for the most expensive judicial contests in American history. What does that tell you about the race?
2: It tells me that there's a whole lot of people outside of Wisconsin the need to get out a little bit more. You know, there's a whole lot of beautiful things that are happening out there. You know, we got this in Wisconsin. We can take care of our business. But they want to have a say in where this is going to go. And so I say, okay, fine. Uh, come on in. Let's have the conversation. Let's have a debate uh, about what the court is for. Let's have a debate about the distinction between the legislature and the court. Now, that's a debate I've been looking forward to for a long time. And unfortunately, Uh, My opponent is afraid to come out and have that debate. So she's hiding behind a whole lot of -of out-of-state money. Uh, So I understand that in the last reporting period, uh, 96% of what she raised came from out-of-state. Now, what that tells me is that the good people of Wisconsin aren't buying the bill of goods that she's trying to sell. And I think that would become really apparent if we sat down in a debate. And I think that's why she doesn't want to debate. So We've had three debates already uh, that she has ducked. I've accepted invitations to debate uh, at more than a dozen uh, opportunities. And uh, so far, Janet has said that she will grace us with her presence and only one. Uh, And I think that's not enough uh, for people to get a good sense of the grave and unique danger that she poses to our judicial system. Other than that, uh, I guess I want people all over Wisconsin and from her words, if it has to be through her hands, I want them to hear the disdain that she has for the truth. If she didn't have lies and slanders, she wouldn't have anything to say, well, aside from talking about her personal politics. But she has made it a, uh, an intentional practice uh, to lie about me. It is the most profoundly dishonest campaign that I've ever seen. I mean, it is, it is certainly beneath the dignity uh, of a judicial race. It's even beneath the dignity for a political race, and indeed, it's beneath contempt. So her glancing relationship with the truth, uh, I think, demonstrates the danger she would be if she were be promoted to the Supreme Court.
1: When you say that, you're you're talking about you know some of these ads that she's yeah. airing, things that she's saying on the campaign trail. Mm-hmm. What strikes you the most? What upsets you the most about what's being said in yeah. those ads?
2: Let's well, talk about just a little bit about her uh, slander on me uh, about a, a couple of cases in which I represented the Spaulding's, and this was the first law firm I was at out of law school, and uh, the case was assigned to me by the firm, and I handled uh, some of the pretrial matters, and then I moved to a different law firm where I spent most of my career. I didn't take that case with me because the firm I was at didn't handle that kind of case. And so her ad uh, does two things that are just deeply, deeply, profoundly dishonest. First, it makes it uh, sound like, that that I defended them at trial, uh, and that I did so knowing that they were child molesters, and that I did so knowing they were child molesters, and that I approved of those activities, which is just an absolute lie, which is not surprising to me that she would do that, because her campaign has been just profoundly dishonest. Now, here's the other problem with that, Uh, and and this is why it, it makes my opponent out as a sloppy and an irresponsible judge. So we all know, I mean, if you've ever watched a cop show ever in your life, you know that every criminal defendant is guaranteed a lawyer, right? Here's the thing. If the defendant doesn't get a lawyer, you can't prosecute that person. So criminal defense attorneys are an exceptionally important piece of our justice system. And so Janet is so focused on getting power and getting to the Supreme Court she's willing to not only slander me she's willing to slander every single attorney who handles criminal cases because what she's suggesting is that each one of those attorneys approves of and supports the crimes their clients are accused of perpetrating i can't imagine something more vile than suggesting that now there are practical implications right now the judicial system is grinding more slowly than normal, especially in rural rural Wisconsin because of the difficulty we've had in finding attorneys who are willing to represent criminal defendants. So along comes Janet, and she says, uh, all of those people that we're trying to get into the system to help the system work so that we can have these prosecutions, she comes out and says, oh, all of you people, you, you are horrible people because you represent criminal defendants. And all of you attorneys, you actually agree with the crimes your clients are accused of committing. That's how sloppy and irresponsible my opponent is. And I find that to be a disgrace to the judiciary.
0: I think another, and we don't have to spend the whole time going over ads and, and attacks on you, but one that has stood out that I know your campaign has pushed back on is, I think there was another ad that said you were on the payroll for Wisconsin Right to Life. And I know Wisconsin Right to Life has said that you were never on the payroll. I think that was referencing a letter from some years ago when you were applying to be on the state Supreme Court when your, their executive director said you'd provided them great counsel over the years. Yep. Do you recall at this point what that would have been
2: referencing? I, I don't. So it's entirely possible that, uh, that they were a client at one point, but it must have been such a minor thing. I don't even recall what it was. But again, going back to the utter dishonesty of my opponent, take a look at, I mean, this is just basic sloppiness. Either that or it's ignorance. So she doesn't understand, apparently, what it means to be on payroll versus having someone as a client. That's stunning to me. How is it possible that a sitting judge doesn't know the difference between clients and being an employee? I mean, that's, I, I just that's shocking. And yes, she thinks that she's qualified to be on the Supreme Court. All right, so so she's sloppy and she's irresponsible, but just fundamentally dishonest. If she wants to go after me for specific work, tell me what it is that bothers you. Tell me what it is that bothers you. But again, she is attacking attorneys who take on clients. I mean, that is a ridiculous thing to do. And it speaks to me of a judge who's either so sloppy, she doesn't care about what the truth is at all, or she just basically doesn't understand how the legal system works.
0: Going back to the national attention, I think you know it's clear that one of the issues that's really drawing a lot of that is the issue of abortion. And it's a case that we can expect will make its way to the state Supreme Court, the challenge to the state's law, which is in Dane County Circuit Court right now. Have you reviewed that specific case?
2: I've seen the pleadings. Okay.
0: You've, again, been critical of, uh, of your opponent for sharing her values on abortion and, and redistricting. Um, and you talked earlier about the the rule of Janet. Can you elaborate on on what that means and how you see that in relation to abortion specifically?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Janet is out there telling everyone how she's going to rule in that case if she's on the Supreme Court. And again, that tells me either that she doesn't understand the difference between the legislature and a court, and I think that's entirely possible at this point, or she just doesn't care. And again, this goes back to uh, her campaign being all about putting yourself above the law. So when the Constitution says that political questions are for the legislature, legal questions are for the court, she looks at that and she says she just doesn't care or she doesn't understand the difference. And so that's why she's out everywhere she goes. She talks about her personal politics. She doesn't talk about the Constitution. She doesn't talk about jurisprudence. She doesn't talk about what a good jurist is and what the qualities are that you need to be a good jurist. She doesn't care about any of that. All she cares about is her personal politics and foisting that on everyone else in the state of Wisconsin. So on this issue, as in all others, she's saying, I am willing to put my thumb on the scale. That's what she's telling the people of Wisconsin. Now, my approach to this and on this, uh, this issue specifically would be exactly the same as it is on every other issue I addressed as a Supreme Court justice or every issue that I will ever address as a Supreme Court justice. It is to apply the law to the extent that it is consistent with the Constitution to resolve the case in front of me. And that's it. And that, incidentally, is exactly what the people of Wisconsin have commanded us to do. And it was not a suggestion, right? So when they set up the legislature and the courts as separate branches of government, it wasn't like, well, you know, this is just the efficient way of doing it, or this is how we prefer, but you guys, you know, if you want to mix and match and all of that, go right on ahead. They didn't say that. They said, this is our sovereign command to you. Don't you do politics. We've got other people for that. You answer questions of law, and that is all.
0: Can you speak a little bit to voters specifically who might look and see? Jennifer Desawitz has talked about how she feels about abortion, but you've been endorsed by anti-abortion groups by, I think, all three of the Mm -hmm. state's main groups. What would you say to voters who look at that and say, well, how can I expect that you wouldn't let that factor in?
2: Yeah. So a couple of things. One, and I think this is really important because, again, my opponent is just being fundamentally dishonest about this. My conversations with each of these groups uh, were the same conversations I have with the rest of the people of Wisconsin. I go, you know, they want to talk with me about potential endorsement, and I say, okay, so here's the deal. This is my promise to you. I will apply the law to the extent that it is consistent with the Constitution without regard to my personal values or my personal politics. That's it, right? That's what I told them. That's what the promise was. They decided that they want the constitutional system to continue working. They want there to be a continued distinction between the court and the legislature. And that's why they endorse me, not because they know how I'm going to rule on any given case, but because they want to make sure that our courts remain courts. Now, here's the way that that, that plays out in practice. So for folks who might be worried, that that endorsement tells them uh, how I might rule in a particular case. One, my commitment and my promise has always been to apply the law without regard to my personal views. Now, here's how you actually do it. Because it's easy to say, right? But the question is, can you do it? Do you know how to do it? So I think there's a three-step process. So first, uh, you have to recognize that every judge who's ever sat on an American bench anywhere in the United States, throughout our history as a country, has had political views. Every single one of them. And if you ever come across a jurist that says he doesn't have political views, he's not being straight with you because he does. All right, so that's step one. You got to acknowledge that you have them. Step two is you got to commit to setting them aside to do the work of the court. And then step three, and I think this is probably the most critical, you got to have a methodology that allows you to do that. Because it's one thing to just say, yeah, I'll set it aside. But our politics are informed by some of the most deeply held values and issues that people have. And that just expresses itself as politics. So you've got to have a system that allows you to effectively set that to the side while you do the work of the court. Here's what that looks like. So you start with the law that's applicable to the case, whether it's a constitutional provision, a statute, a regulation, common law, whatever it might be. You start with that, and then you use rigorous logic to move from those premises all the way down to the conclusion. And when you're done, you should be able to look back and see an unbroken chain of logic between the conclusion and the premises. And if you can, that's your guarantee the conclusion is commanded by law rather than influenced by personal view or uh, or politics. Now, when there's a break in that, chain of logic, that's when personal politics and values can start seeping in. So the work of the court um, is verifiable. You can actually look at the opinions and determine whether personal values have had an influence because you can can watch, at least in the opinions that I write, you can watch the chain of logic develop all the way down to the conclusion. And this is one of the reasons why I have every opinion that I ever wrote as a Supreme Court justice on our website, justicedanielkelly.com Because I want people in Wisconsin to be able to go back and look at the work I have done for them as one of their Supreme Court justices and confirm that the law commanded the conclusion and that it was not infected by my personal views. So I think that's the way that plays out. And that's the guarantee to everyone who's concerned that personal views might be infecting the work of the court. Go back and look at my work, and you can verify that it didn't.
1: Judge Protosaywitz told us that she expects that she would enjoy taking a fresh look at Wisconsin's electoral maps. It's sure our legislative districts. What do you make of that? I think we have some idea, but what do you make of that? And do you expect that such a case would come before the court if you're elected?
2: Yeah. So she has been adamant that the maps are rigged, that they're not fair, that they're not representative. And yeah, I bet she would enjoy taking a fresh look at them. She's made it abundantly clear that she does not see her role as being bounded by the Constitution. She doesn't believe that the role of a jurist is simply to decide questions of law. She wants to decide disputed political questions. So here's how I think uh, it works out with respect to redistricting maps. A district map is almost entirely an act of politics, right? And that's why the legislature is supposed to draw those maps because there's a whole lot of considerations that go into a whole lot of the horse trading, and compromises, and decisions about where the lines ought to go and how districts ought to be shaped, and so on. And those are all those are all political questions. So as we talked about earlier, we've got two branches here in question. One of them is for political questions. One's for legal, and it doesn't change depending on uh, on what is brought to the court. So if the uh, if the maps are brought to the court. The court's job is the same as it is on every single other case it ever considers resolved legal questions. All right, so on the maps, as I mentioned, it is almost entirely a product of political, prudential uh, decisions. But there are legal requirements for maps. Um, The districts have to have equal population. The Wisconsin Constitution's Article 4, Section 4, says that they must be reasonably compact and contiguous, right, The Voting Rights Act uh, provides that they can't be drawn in such a way that it intentionally disadvantages racial minorities. And so these are all legal standards. So the job of the court, when they are presented with a map, and the claim is that there are legal problems with it, it's unconstitutional for whatever reason, their job is to remedy the constitutional or other legal violations, but to leave everything else intact because, again, the court's not there to do politics. So I think that my opponent has made it abundantly clear that the reason that she's eager to take a look at that map is not to resolve legal questions, it's to resolve political questions. She doesn't personally like the maps. She does not approve of the maps. And so she wants to change the maps. Now, I think this is just astounding condescension to the people of Wisconsin, because what she's saying is, is when she proposes to set herself above the law, when she proposes to substitute the political decisions the legislature made with her own values, she's looking down her nose at the rest of Wisconsin and saying that she sees all of you and she doesn't think you're responsible enough to develop laws in conversation with your legislature uh, that would be appropriate. So she's there to replace those laws with what she thinks they ought to be. I think that's unbelievably condescending, on top of being unconstitutional.
1: Andrew Hitt, who is the former chairman of the Wisconsin Republican Party, told the January 6th committee that while you were working as the party's special counsel, the two of you had, quote, pretty extensive conversations about a plan from Republicans to submit a slate of, of fake electoral college electors. Did you have any qualms about advising on a plan or having those discussions on a plan like that that could have been used to overturn what you know, was a legitimate election in 2020.
2: Right, I would always be concerned about any plan that had its aim uh, overturning a legitimate election. So there's been a few stories on this, and they are remarkable in an inability to grasp a pretty simple concept. So the rest of the the testimony that Andrew had gave, part of it was, so we have one conversation. So the extensive conversations were a 30-minute phone call uh, in which he asked me if I was in the loop on that plan, and I said I wasn't, because I wasn't. And I told him that I wasn't really versed in that area of the law, and so I wouldn't be, feel comfortable uh, without doing research of going any further than that. And that was it. Now, here's the thing that the reporter couldn't figure out how to grasp. So uh, there's that, what Andrew said. I'm not in the loop. And we had one 30-minute phone call. And the reporter says, that puts me in the center of this plan. <laughs> I don't understand how you can be not in the loop and be the center of the plan simultaneously. I think it was a ridiculous article.
0: What role do you see the state Supreme Court potentially playing in the next presidential election?
2: Um, virtually none. I mean, you know, we're, again, we're there to answer questions of law, and an election is a quintessential political act, right? So the candidates come out, and their, requ- their requirement, of course, is they obey the law as they're campaigning, and that the election be conducted according to the law. But I have uh, no doubt that that will happen. Um, If there is an allegation that there is some act of illegality, then I'm sure that will come to the court and will be dressed according to the law. But other than that, I see no role for the court at all. What do you believe the most important qualities in a judge? I think humility is probably the most paramount. Uh, The understanding that we are not there to do what we wish to do. You know, I've often heard growing up, and you might have too, uh, hearing those you know, who hold state office refer to themselves as public servants. You know, as I was growing up, sometimes I got a little sense that uh, when people said that, they're kind of patting themselves on the back a little bit. And I don't think there's any room for that. Public servant, this is the way I look at it. So a few years back, my wife and I were invited to a church service. It wasn't in our regular church. But my wife knows the pastor's wife, and they wanted uh, some folks who were in state government to come and be in their service. So we went, and uh, lovely service. At the end of it, I was out in the foyer talking to some folks, and the pastor came up to me, and uh, he said, Justice Kelly, I want to thank you for being in our service today. It was great to have someone so important be here with us. And when he said that about importance, my heart just dropped. I said, you know, Pastor, can we rewind the conversation just a couple of seconds? I said, you know, I I've often thought that where you rank is inversely proportional to the number of bosses that you have. Right? The more bosses you have, lower you rank. Fewer bosses you have, higher you rank. I said, Pastor, how many bosses do you have? He says, Well, I've got one. I said, Yeah? Well, I got six million. So between you and me, you outrank me by a whole heck of a lot. So, and that's the way this is supposed to work, right? So all this authority that I used on the Supreme Court, it was only on loan to me by the owners of that authority, the people of Wisconsin. And so I had six million bosses, and I understood my role was to serve them, to be a servant. Now, last I looked, there are no award shows for servants. Nobody rolls out a red carpet for servants. The best that can happen to you as a servant is at the end of the day your boss looks at you and says you did good you can come back tomorrow right so i think that's the first quality of a good jurist is to understand you've got bosses you are answerable to them the authority you use belongs to them and your job is to be faithful to what they have told you to do and then everything else will flow from that you'll work hard because you know you've got great bosses uh, you'll be diligent because it's necessary to do the job that they've asked you to do. And if you enjoy serving them and you enjoy the work you're doing as a servant, you'll make sure to do it especially well so they'll say, come back tomorrow. Uh, so I think that's probably the most important characteristic.
1: We're talking with Wisconsin Supreme Court candidate Daniel Kelly. We spoke to his opponent, Janet Protosewitz, last week. Find that episode wherever you listen to podcasts. More to come.
0: Wedge Issues is sponsored by Leopold's Books Bar Cafe, Madison's bookstore for night owls, serving craft cocktails, locally roasted coffee, and desserts, every day from morning till midnight. More information at leopoldsmadison.com. Well, this is usually where I say we're going to move on to the fun part, but I get the sense that everything that we've been talking about is the fun part for you. For me,
2: it is. Absolutely. <laughs> but
0: we are going to move into the lightning round, which is a little right. less about the law and a little bit more about you. All
2: right, do I need to limber up for this or anything? No,
0: no physical challenges. Okay. Okay. What's your favorite Wisconsin beer?
2: Favorite Wisconsin beer? Now, now, see, this is a stumper. I got a taste of beer when I was, oh, I couldn't have been more than 15. So it was from my dad. And I took that sip and I thought, You drink this intentionally? (laughs) So, regrettably, I just have never been a fan of beer. Root beer, I guess, would be my favorite beer.
0: Fair enough. And we do make some good root beer. Yes, indeed. Yeah.
1: (laughs) What's your favorite knick-knack or family heirloom or tchotchke that you own?
2: It is a broken pocket watch. So, when I was growing up, I had uh, three brothers and three sisters, and uh, we didn't have much. We didn't know it at the time. You know, we we had what we needed. Uh, but uh, I remember one day when uh, my dad pulled me aside, and it was kind of a sobering conversation. And he says, Dan, when I'm done here with this life, I'm not going to have a whole lot to leave you. But I will promise you this. I will leave you a good name. And a year after I graduated from law school, his comments came to pass. And he didn't have much to leave me. A uh, couple of cufflinks a broken pocket watch, but he did leave me a good name. And every time I look at that broken pocket watch, I remember that conversation and his promise to me. It's come to be a stand-in for that promise he made, that he would leave me a good name. And it reminds me that that's when I want to leave my children a good name. You must be spending a lot
1: of time in the car these days. What song or artist are you listening to right now?
2: (laughs) I wish I was listening to music. So time in the car is split between telephone calls and then work. That is occupying me. And I'm a little concerned. Now, just so you know, I have a driver. So it's not like I've got the computer on my lap and (laughs) the steering wheel and all that. But I want to be respectful of my drivers. I have music I enjoy listening to. It's probably pretty broad spectrum, but I don't know what their taste might be. And I don't want to have to inflict that on them. Sure. Well, what do you like to listen to? Yes. So as I mentioned, it is kind of a broad spectrum. It changes by the day. I think you get to a certain age, you enjoy the music of your youth. And so I've been listening to a lot of uh, 70s and 80s music. Now, not disco, <laughs> other than Bee Gees. I love the Bee Gees. Okay. Uh, so, you know, there's a fair amount of that. You know how music works. There are things that uh, you hear them and they just instantly transport you to a certain time and place. And the more years you accumulate, I think the more you appreciate those specific times and places, so I enjoy revisiting those through music. And uh, so, seventies and eighties uh, is great. But you know, uh, one other, uh, one other genre that I enjoy immensely is turns out is country music. My dad, uh, when he was a young man, was an honest-to-god cowboy. So he's uh, working ranches in Wyoming and Colorado, uh, and eventually California. And, you know, not these motorcycle cowboys. He's on the back of a horse and he's out rounding up the cattle, just the whole nine yards. And so, as I was growing up, there were a couple of things that were just part of life and I didn't know that there was anything else. So, you know, some of those were there is music, there are boots, and there are hats. (laughs) Now, as it turns out, it's country music, it's cowboy boots, and it's a cowboy hat. As I was growing up west of Denver uh, and Santa Barbara prior to that, It was those iterations, and you just look, and when you're young, you look at the world, and you're like, well, that's what it is. When someone says they're wearing boots, of course they mean they're wearing cowboy boots. When they say they got a hat on, of course it's a cowboy. Anyway, so my dad loved uh, country and western. And actually, you know, we shove those together as a genre today. My dad would make a distinction. There's country, and then there's western. (laughs) And he loved western. So I grew up on Johnny Cash and loved Johnny Cash but then there's music that feeds your soul. So I love opera. There is nothing quite like that to suggest the beauty of uh, the divine. And uh, and so I enjoy listening to that as well.
0: What is one stereotypically Wisconsin thing or you know travel destination that you've never done and and would like to do?
2: Never been to the cheese castle. Mm.
0: I mean, you're on the road. That's an easy opportunity.
1: Near and dear to my heart, I grew up just north of there. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. So a little story about it. So I, I've come to love cheese like crazy. Uh, <laughs> and I am I've been deeply indebted to my wife for that. So as I was growing up, uh, cheese was American cheese. And that was it. I meet my wife, and she's Italian. And boy, howdy, are there some good cheeses. <laughs> and there are some cheesemakers here in Wisconsin that are just outstanding. So I have grown to appreciate a variety uh, of cheeses, and it has just opened my uh, eyes to an entirely new world. So that would be one I have not yet caught a musky. Oh, uh, and I find that to be inexcusable. <laughs> I love fishing. You know, I hear that a musky is a catch of a thousand casts. I hesitate to admit this. I've had more than a thousand casts, <laughs> and no musky yet. But uh, I love catching walleye in Northern, and uh, they're uh, they're wonderful. Nothing quite like a walleye uh, fish dinner. It is just uh, it's a delight.
0: Sets me up for my next question. You've had a long day at work. You're stressed out. What is the comfort food that you crave?
2: There are two. One from my youth, and that would be meatloaf. I love meatloaf. Good, love solid a good meatloaf. Love Irish meatloaf. meatloaf. Oh, yeah, that's good stuff. And the other, again, from the category of my wife, opening my eyes uh, to an entirely new world. She makes a a killer lasagna and it is to die for. So, especially hard day, if there's meatloaf for lasagna at the end of it, I can get through anything.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, our last question. I have a sense this might be a difficult choice for you. What is your favorite Wisconsin cheese?
2: Oh, see, it would be a little too on the nose to say cheddar, but I have had some five-year-age cheddar that is just a. but I've also had some artisanal Asiago, mm. and there's just something about that that it just... I love that. I just love that. And especially on tortellini. A little bit of... A little bit of pesto, uh, some Asiago. Mm. Oh, that, that is good. So, you know, I've given you two answers for pretty much everything else before. <laughs> so, <laughs> some nice aged cheddar and Asiago.
0: Perfect. Sir. All right. All right.
1: Justice Daniel Kelly, thank you so much for joining Wedge Issues.
0: Thank you for listening to Wedge Issues. Our show is sponsored by Leopold's Books Bar Cafe and edited by Haley Bowers. Our intro music is Oh, Wisconsin by Loxley. We'll have new episodes every other week. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe, rate us on Apple Podcasts, and tell a friend. And if you haven't already, sign up for Wedge Issues, the newsletter, at captimes.com newsletters. I'm Jesse O'Poyan. Thanks for listening.